My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is the Technically Speaking Podcast. I sit down with BIPOC designers, entrepreneurs, and technologists. We discuss careers, triumphs, their resilience, and the why behind their decisions. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to plug our Patreon. If you like what you're listening to and you want to support the podcast, for as low as $3, you can contribute monthly to help support the production of the show. You can contribute today by heading over to patreon.com slash technically speaking HW. I'll also include the link in the show notes. Hey everybody, my name is Harrison Miller and welcome to another episode of Technically Speaking. My guest today is Dr. Kena Luke Ijakyuk, who is the Assistant Professor of Professional and Technical Writing at Virginia Tech. Welcome to the show. Thanks Harrison, I'm glad to be here. How's that Virginia summer treating you so far? The moisture in the air is amazing for my skin and I got a layered hairdo so it does little my very straight hair has some curl to it. It's amazing. Oh, all sort the of like things. No, like for me, like I love humid weather, right? Because I'm like, my skin is going to be glowing once I get back to California. That's dry. And my skin always, usually in the fall, my skin kind of cracks. It's so dry here. So I, I feel you. Like, like there are some positive benefits to humidity. I think the humidity is really nice. I like it. And the plant life here is so lush that I just, yeah. I like to forage. And so I notice like so many things and I'm like, I wonder if I could eat that. I wonder if I could. And so maybe there's <laughs> just all this cool, like it's a treasure trove of biodiversity in this area. Yeah. Has like foraging always been something that you've done or is that something you've just picked up more recently? It is something. So we, I also did something different growing up. So I'm yeah. thinking back and I'm from Northwest Alaska and I'm from a pretty like subsistence oriented family. So I grew up like mm -hmm. our family harvested animals, like on the regular, not as like a yeah. cool weekend in the mountains, but as like a way of life and way of living. We, yeah. Yeah. And so then we also, I guess forage would be the right word, but just like picking, we picked greens, to oaks, that kind of thing. I don't know. They are the English, but they're like a some kind of green plant. And then willow, little bits of like willow before they got they get big and bitter. And then also we pick berries, of course, and just tons of stuff. So I grew up like knowing the edible plants where I lived yeah. and when to pick them. And so I carry that with me as I move around yeah. in the world. And I like to learn about, I like to learn about the local plants and, yeah. and I like to taste them. Yeah. Not a hobby, a way of life. <laughs> yeah. It's more of a hobby. I'm not like making sure I, I can eat, but like at my old house, when I lived in Utah for graduate school, we had a big lilac, a li giant lilac bush. And it was pretty slow growing. And it was just, it yeah. was like giant purple and white flowers that came out nearly like around Mother's Day. So fragrant. And it's lilac has a really interesting history with like colonial structures because they were mm. used to a lot to deter. They're very hardwood and they like were to show like property lines 
So they have this, this idea wow. of like divvying up the landscape. So they're like really have a strong link with colonialism in the United Whoa. States and elsewhere. And so I thought it was really fun to pick lilac flowers and we made lilac sugar out of them. Just flavored the sugar with lilac flowers and then also yeah. did like lilac jam and syrup and such. So I like wow. to do that stuff. I do the dandelions as well. And I also, I like medicinal plants. And so I think about those and I harvest those. I made my own flowers out of some kind of roadside crunchy thing. <laughs> some roadside crunchy thing. It's a dock plant, but it's, okay. so they're probably, it's a common weed. It's considered a weed. And, okay. and it's really edible, just like a thistle, right? When you see that thistles Got on the it. side of the road, you're like, whoa, that's really prickly. Every part of the thistle is edible. Is it fun to eat? Maybe not so fun, but that is just is a good experience, but is it nutritious? Yes. And so these plants, yeah. these dock plants, they have these like seed pods that grow up and they're big and brown and there's like a zillion seeds. And so I crushed them up and I made probably the world's densest bread with it. And so I would only like if you had a cup of flour that you were supposed to put in a bread. I know there's many more cups than that, but I would probably just do like maybe a quarter of that dock flour and then yeah. the rest regular flour. So, yeah, I guess that's something I'm into. <laughs> It sounds like an episode of Cooking with Kena, right? Like, it could be a thing. I even wrote about it in an academic paper. <laughs> so, yeah, there we where, go. Yeah, we wrote about how, and how we used this app to help us identify plants because it was an area that I hadn't foraged in before. And we ha I had a Rocky Mountain guide, but it was really hard to double check that these were the correct plants. And so it was really interesting to use this one app. And at the time, it didn't account for edibility. Is it edible? And hey. We were thinking about okay, what gets labeled weed and what gets labeled flower, what gets labeled plant, yeah. what gets labeled these different things, and what does, and then we linked it to the urge to call things decolonial and how people like to make everything, you can decolonial this, decolonial that, and to, but it was a way to mean like maybe non-normative or pushing back against this status quo or social justice type stuff and so we thought a lot about like how does this like urban foraging that we were doing link to mm. colonial food ways and also how does it link to the way we as scholars think about frameworks or think about what we do and yeah. the impacts of like cherry picking parts of a framework or parts of a way of understanding mm. something to use it for the way to get your stuff noticed and yeah what word is ambition cloud good practice and so that's doesn't sound like it goes with urban forage yeah. but it did <laughs> so for sure I'm, i mean it affects like the perceived value of something and obviously a decision that you would make but i will say this i'm glad that you define the crunchy roadside thing as a plant and not something else because it could be many different things <laughs> that's a good point you're right. That was not clear language. And I'm sure imaginations can go all over the place with that. Yeah. So let's get into a few icebreakers. Definitely want to touch into that a little bit more as it relates to some of the technical writing that you do. And then obviously where you see things potentially going and opportunities. But we might have actually just touched on it. But I always ask this question to guests like, what is something that you're currently obsessed with? I'm obsessed with learning how to play the piano. Oh, yeah. Okay. How's that going? 
it's a few days in and, and I'm learning to play like chords so okay. I can sing. And my husband plays guitar and I play guitar too, but not as well as him. So because yeah. I'm too competitive, I've bowed away from the guitar. And yeah. now I'm, I'm going with the playing songs and thinking about how rhythm works on a piano because it's different. Mm. And so I'm obsessed with digital pianos right now. Okay. And weighted keys and thinking through what is the best one to get for my budget and for mm. what I think my growth as a musician might take me, which mm. I'm hoping is are, are you like, is this small town every Wednesday or are you trying to go world tour on this? No, I hate performing in front of people. I like to sing in, I'll do it. But I, and I have performed on stage music wise, but I have no interest in becoming anything beyond like garage band or yeah. band singing yeah. my guts out style. That's, yeah. but I, I love to sing, I love to write music. And so I'm obsessed surprisingly with digital pianos at the moment yeah. and how best to play piano for the needs I have, which is not to be like a concert, like being yeah. playing whatever, learning to even read music and mostly just to, to yeah. sing and play notes and chords on the piano that are really like bar, that would be bar chords on our guitar, which mm. are really hard for me. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's awesome. I just, last night I actually took like a DJ lesson. And so that's probably going to be like my upset. I mean, I DJed when I lived in Iowa, very casual. I did shows that people went to, but now I'm like, I should try to come back with it. Like it's, I love it when I love it. I'm selfish. Like I love listening to music. So for one, it entertains me, but I love it when people like to listen to what I listen to. I love that. Okay. Good luck so, on your DJing so, quest. Yes. Yes, exactly. DJ Quest. Maybe I can open up for one of your shows, right? How about that? You can open up on the front porch and yes. hit the stage. It's the front porch, yeah. the neighbors are the audience. <laughs> yes, exactly. And be like, what is this man playing? Okay, next question. What is something that people don't talk about enough? I think people don't talk enough about their bodies in these mm. like terms that are not like as a body, like we categorize it and put it into these, this is what this body means. But so for example, this is going to make me sound super weird, but I'm just going to say it is so last night I was watching my husband play Mario Kart and there are these new tracks that are on the <laughs> Mario Kart. It's, and so there's one track called uh, in the New York minute. Yeah. I think it was in that one. And there's these like mushroom guys like walking around and I'm like, oh, that looks like a particular body part. And I thought to myself, that's dirty to say, but I'm like, why is it dirty to say? Cause I would say the same thing is if it, there was like this thing that looked like an ear walking yeah. around. And so I think we've like our bodies, we've applied tons of, we've added value labels to lots of it. And even just like getting ready for this podcast, I'm like, oh, am I presentable on this part? What does this mean? Like, how does mm -hmm. this interact with people's meaning making of what I'm saying. And so there, I think people aren't talking enough about the embodiment that we, that is forced upon us and the embodiment that we have uptaken and yeah. perform out for good or bad. I, so much of my life would be just so much simpler if I could just accept my body as part of this organism and be able to love it 
in these ways that don't feel so loaded yeah. and also talk about it in these ways that don't feel so loaded. Because if I'm like, this guy sounds terrible, but if I shove something in my armpit, let's say it like, I'm like, it's not polite to talk about armpits and ask right. people like, hey, is, does your armpit do this? Because <laughs> it's embarrassing. Yeah. But it's just like, yeah. okay, but that's just the place where my arm meets my torso. Like that oh. under that. And what if I want to talk about that so I can like yeah. have my armpit optimized? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, look, I get it, right? I think of it, I think of it almost of, yeah, people have created rules around what you can talk about. I think that has major implications, right? Because let's say you have a lump under your armpit, right? And you don't feel comfortable talking to someone about it or because you're not able to articulate something in a certain way, then people refuse to listen. And maybe symptoms that you're having aren't ever going to be tended to because of some vernacular that someone said is only the right way to do it. So yeah, there, there there's, there's, a, there's some a effects lot. to that. I, I think there are. And I think there, there are physical ones, but then there's these like emotional ones of like, how do I move through the world? And how am I and, allowed to move through the world? What am I supposed to, what is my posture? What is all these different things about how I fidget? Like it has like meaning making on other people's ends. Yeah. And yet we're not allowed to really talk about even the basics of our bodies, especially yeah. not in professional settings at all. Yeah. Because then like that goes into these other realms that, I don't no. know, it's the way, I think our, our relationships with our bodies has forgotten that we're humans mm. and that's just like my skin sack is like the boundaries of me and help me interact with the world and i want to be able to like talk about it and it affects yeah. like design it affects all these different things but we are like really afraid to talk about chub rub yeah. right between like when i walk and my thighs touch each other when you gain a little weight, mm. like you can't acknowledge that those things exist and that like the design of like skirts or shorts or whatever can contribute mm. to this like discomfort and chafing that I might have, mm. that I have to quietly act as if it's not happening and walk normally. Right. That. It's right. stuff that I think a lot about, maybe too much, but it really, I just, I don't know. I guess I'm just, I guess the stigma of bodies is really something yeah. that. I feel like needs to be talked a little bit more by whom I don't know, yeah. but I yeah. certainly like to be able to feel like not so much a weirdo. Like I feel right now yeah. about that's yeah. thing I, I bring up. This is a safe space. I don't think you're a weirdo. That all makes sense. If you want to talk about your skin sack, that's okay. <laughs> we have my skin sack. We're traveling across the country recently. <laughs> Noticing yeah. the humidity changing, especially around yeah. Arkansas. Yeah. Look, we are, we are, for listeners, we were talking about all the places that you've lived. I'm sure there can be a separate skin sack story on all the climates from Alaska to Pleasanton to Virginia. My skin sack in the suburbs yes. has a different way of rolling through the world than it does in the mountains here. <laughs> or in the valleys. Yes. Hey, let's focus on you. Maybe give the listeners a bit about who you are and how you got to be an assistant professor, really with a focus on technical writing, but also social justice, equitable research, 
in, in topics in those areas? So I'm from Alaska. I'm from a village in Northwest Alaska. I'm Inupat, which is a particular, like a more specific way of saying Inuit. Inuit is, uh, means people. Inubate is like my particular type of people where I'm from culturally. And then Inupat is a singular. And so I'm an Inupat from Northwest Alaska. And I grew up in this pretty traditional family in a lot of ways. My mom is from a little village in Northwest Alaska named Norvik. And my dad, my adopted dad is from an island, St. Lawrence Island in the Bering Sea in a little village called Savunga. And they have a biological parrot who hasn't been in my life for a long time, but they are from Germany. So I grew up in all these different places and having tons of privilege in lots of ways and not so much privilege in other ways. A lot of people expected because I am from Northwest Alaska that I haven't spent a ton of time outside of that. I've always lived in the modern era and people there in the villages do as well. And, yeah. but just with different circumstances. And I had the privilege to travel a ton in my life. Like I've been all over the place. And then thinking about that, those opportunities, I, and actually end on one of those opportunities that my children's father and I, and my kids were like 12 and 14. We lived in South America and we lived in Chile and we mm. bought a van again, like those Volkswagen, yeah. the, the pop tops. And we fixed it up and we drove back to the United States. And so we were living in this van, driving through the the Atacama Desert in Chile. We had just driven up the lakes of Argentina, which is, there's a lot of desert there too. And just this really reflective time. And we all asked ourselves, like, we all talked about what we're going to do when we get back to the United States. And I had finished an undergraduate degree. It took me a long time to finish it and lots of false starts. But you know, I finished this undergraduate degree in environmental studies. And I had decided I wanted to go to grad school. And I was really afraid to apply because hey. I had some struggles in undergraduate. But I was always a good student when I put my mind to it. So I, I felt like I could go to graduate school. And, and so I looked into a communication degree when I got back. And I wound up going to Idaho State because it was in the same town that I was living in at the time in Pocatello, Idaho. And I worked on a master's in communication, media, and persuasion. And in in that process, I thought a lot about actually of positionality. I didn't know that term yet, but I thought about performativity. Like, how do we perform gender? How do we perform a particular embodiment? And what does that do to the communication that we send out and receive, like how is that a filter, thinking through that stuff in my master's program, especially with regards to aging. I come from Hmm. people, the Nupate, who are very elder-driven community. So we think a lot about our elders and revere elders and spend our life training to be an elder, not like how people train to be a Jedi or something like that, whereas now it's done. (laughs) I just started Star Wars, like learning about Star Wars, just so I can, as a way to enjoy something that my husband really is into. So we just started with episode one last night. So I have Jedi training on the mind. Yeah. Qui-Gon was trying to advocate for Anakin Skywalker to become a Jedi. Yeah. So it's not like we we don't have that formalized structure, but it's like this idea of like, how do we interact with the world and others and our cultural values? And I thought a lot about that in my master's program. If you don't don't mind, what is the role of an elder? The role of an elder is 
first off, a storyteller. A Roland and elder is a, a culture keeper, knowledge keeper, but they mm. do it through a story and through experiential learning in those story ways. And so an elder helps people understand who they are and how they fit in with the community and to help them harness that back spirit that we have through our values and our culture and carry that out and in. And so yeah. an elder is, there's no formal training, but it's right. something that's really important. And Western frames of aging, thinking about aging is our, this idea of decline and reduced mm like production, where in right. my culture, it's like increased production. It's a different type value system. And I thought a lot about what that means and does. And weirdly, I incorporated that with horror. So I was like, I used Western frames of aging and this idea of horror films and such to like use aging things to express fear because that those things actually wouldn't necessarily exist in the same ways it's very culturally laden. And so right. now I, when I look back at that work, I, and as I moved towards technical communication, technical writing, professional technical communication, I, instead of just observing what does this communication mean or do, what does being an elder mean? It's really very much like what does an elder, the practice of being an elder do and how yeah. might that be integrated into systems or how is this integrating systems? How is it like cultural community systems? And how could it be increased? That integration be increased? How can we make sense of what's happening in Virginia by thinking about the way elders function in other communities and using yeah. that as a lens? And so I think a lot about that stuff. And so I went to in my PhD program, really, it all turned towards social justice stuff yeah. to help me get the vocabulary and skills to work on issues facing my people versus mm. using that for my learning experience, I guess is the way to say it. I chose not to focus on my own people for my dissertation work research because I, I just didn't, I felt clumsy. That's the only way to put it. And mm. so... Did you feel clumsy? So I was just learning how to analyze stuff and also learning how mm -hmm. like Western freight, like how my education is, I have a cultural education, but I also have this very Western formal education right. and how that acts as a worldview. Sometimes right. it's my go-to and I didn't want to do that. I wanted mm. to learn more about and challenge that more in myself as I was learning before taking that to my community. And right handling that preciousness of my community that really matters mm. to me with these clumsy hands that really mm. is steeped in white saviorhood steeped in yeah white saviorhood right <laughs> and i don't i didn't want to approach my community in that in those frames right. because those are standard procedure frames and i and so right. i needed to learn more about them have a little more power to challenge them mm. Right. With now that I'm a professor, I have that. And, right. and I have the title to be like, no, actually. And which I didn't have as a graduate student. So I chose to abstain, actually yeah. abstain from centering my community in my dissertation research hmm. as an act of care. Yeah. I find that like super fascinating, right? Because yeah, that there's a limited English kind of vocabulary and I just love just like you being conscious, like, hey, this might limit just all of the value that's here to basically 
only be read by people with a particular gaze. So yeah, I love that. Another thing I think is like super fascinating is that like it's your collective experience and that lens that you're bringing into your education, right? And so one question I want to, I always ask like a level set question, right? So what exactly is technical writing and how does that show up in our lives? Oh man, it shows up everywhere. So technical and professional communication, which takes, has lots of names, technical writing, which would be like a technical writer would be like a job that people might have in professional communication is all over the place. Today, I installing a new vanity or the mirror above the vanity in my bathroom. So I pull out the manual and I look yeah. through and it's writing communication that instructs action yeah. is what I would say technical communication is. So at the most basic level, it's guides, instructions, recipes. And then professional communication is like communication that helps people do their job. So in my job, I need to create a syllabus or a schedule, or I need to do certain types of writing, grant writing and such that allow me to be able to do my job. And so that is at its most basic forms. Yeah. But when you look around your right, you are being instructed by writing all over the place hmm. you might have a book that is like a religious in nature right and in yeah. that book that's religious in nature it tells you how to behave to act yeah. right my hmm. cultural system has a set of 17 codified values those 17 codified values teach you how to be an inupak and then one day become an elder but same thing is like how to vote how to register yeah. to vote how to fill out a birth certificate. Like my name doesn't fit in the birth certificate. Mm -hmm. So my name is Kena Ulokachakya. Kena is my first name and that's great. It's, it's a biblical name. Ulok is my tribal name and it is in the same position as Kena culturally. It's like yeah. when I'm home, people call me Ulok and there's so much meaning behind the name Ulok. It talks about like my lineage. It talks about characteristics, connects me with other people named the same thing or people who were friends, which who I was named after. So it's like this huge thing. And then Achakia yeah. is my last name. But on a birth certificate, we just have first, middle, last. And so right. that middle name goes into like initial mode or glossed over. And right. there's no such thing as being able to get my tribal name and indicate that importance on these like documents that regulate my, literally regulate my identity. And so right. technical communication encompasses all these different things that we do, forms we fill out, rules we have to follow, policies. But also yeah. our interactions of like me asking you, Harrison, hey, how do you, if you were going to start a podcast, what would you start off with? And what would you right. think through? And you would be like, oh, right. when I did it, I did it like this. And these are the things, pitfalls. And so you're influencing my future action through that communication. Right. So it's a broad field, but it's a small field. And we are very useful to lots of fields. 
Yeah. Look, there's some huge implications, right, to some of the instructional design that you're talking to. And I think like I've never thought of writing in that way of just it really tells us how to move through these different contexts. And so one thing I'd want to ask you is like, how do you make that type of writing like more equitable? Right. I think a lot of times we think about let's think about like the design process, right? I can't speak for everybody, but a lot of times the writing part is usually the last, right? And how do you sort of question sort of the status quo and push writing in a way that's more inclusive to different circumstances? Yeah, your question really is a great one and it has a lot of layers. Like what counts as writing? Yeah. What like is code? writing because it certainly mm. impacts society right in a script like we it's it is writing and my right. colleague studies coding as writing and i just wrote something about is citation writing like citing people is that because those are their choices in how we are communicating yeah. what work body of work other people's work is in conversation with my own. So those are choices yeah. that we are thinking about. It doesn't look like writing, like once upon a time, storytelling, narrative stuff. But those things are writing that impact and influence society. So how do we make that more socially just, right? How do we think through that? I think that really starts with you as the writer and understanding, number one, thinking through your own positionality and privilege, right? And how that affects your worldview, therefore your writing and what you might value, what you might think is normal, what you might think, you know, isn't normal, whatever it is. And, yeah. and how that might change in different circumstances. And also how your positionality and privilege really afford you a certain power. And so yeah. you can, as a technical communicator or as a designer, it can in your sphere of influence and what you are doing as a professional, you have certain affordances, right? A margin of maneuverability. And I'm using these terms that come from scholars in my field, Rebecca Walton, Natasha Jones, and Kristen Moore. But so I just want to give them a shout out. This margin of maneuverability allows me, they're a little bit different over here, right? Now that I'm a professor and I teach science writing, I'm like, oh, I'm going to teach a socially just science writing because I can yeah. say that I'm going to do that and I'm going to incorporate social justice into science writing. But when I was a graduate student, would I have the same power? If I'm an adjunct, do I have the same power? I'm on the tenure track, so I have a lot. It's a little harder to get rid of me. And so yeah. if, I don't play the, if I don't play the game exactly right. And so understanding that margin of maneuverability that you have hmm. and being willing to take calculated risks, depending on yeah. your own embodiment and what you got going on in your life to move it towards less oppressive outcomes, like thinking through, mm. can this writing contribute to an oppressive outcome? Most simple example, right? You have a form survey you're making and you're like, oh, what's simple demographic ish information? And you're like, oh, what, how do I class gender? Mm. And nowadays I notice heavily, right? When somebody who's not non-binary, I'm not too spirit. I don't know. I'm like in this thing, but I have a child that is non-binary. I notice when a form just has the binary, male, female. And then I also yeah. know when it says other, and I'm like, Ew. <laughs> and so those things might not give you the hurts or the feels or touch you in a way if it doesn't impact your life and touch a vector right. of oppression that affects you. Yeah. 
but being aware that just because it doesn't do it to you, that it may do it to others and right. designing things in ways that with an open heart, a good heart towards towards others is, I guess, in yes. using that margin maneuverability to do it is without permission. Don't ask permission. Just don't. Yeah. And yeah. so that, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Quick question on sort of your experience, right? What has it, you're bringing in this intersection of obviously your passion for social justice, your background, your upbringing. How has that sort of played a role in pushing against the status quo, particularly in like academia? Like how's that been and what advice would you have for folks that are trying to be more inclusive that are also potentially like that vector of people that aren't represented or maybe represented for the first time? The advice I would give people would be really build in extra time, right? Thoughtful design that has the ability for people to interact with it and point out issues or you might uncover that. If you build in time to adjust, right, to have these conversations prior to design, to really think through users, right, what they're really coming for. And that's something I do with my work that I do in design and in interfaces and different things like that in my research, but really building in extra time because a lot of time it's that expediency, this thing that we're like efficiency that drives tons of oppressive structures, right? It's And because number one, we follow a path that other people have ahead of us. So we're like, oh, if the scholar that, you know, trained me or this supervisor has do it, does it this way, then this is obviously the correct way mm. without building in time to look at that system, that right. path and go, hmm, I wonder if we just did this a little bit different, what could the results be? What are we concealing by just doing the same thing everybody's doing? What might challenging that or at least reconsidering that reveal to us about yeah. new pathways, especially pathways that are recognizing colonialism, like that the colonial structures have created the way that we're, things happen, which really links to capitalism and, re and really thinking through is this, yes, this might be more efficient to run it this way, but are we going to have to remediate that? in the future too, that's the advice that you have to say is like remediation is much harder than good design upfront and building in time to do good design of research procedures mm. of how you like talk to if you have a research participants to reflect okay i heard you saying this is that what you meant and then to correct you and then not feel like you have the pressure of that correction to be able to really incorporate that into what you're doing so people feel heard versus mm. herded. And right. I, so time is the biggest advice that I ask people to consider, which never works for academic time clocks, never works for capitalist production in the industry, never works for all these yeah. things. But when you have work that's centered on relationships, if you don't build time into listening, then how can you expect people to tell you what's really happening mm. in a way that is has trust in that? And how can we change things? So I, yeah, challenging colonial notions of time is really what yeah. I advise anybody to do with, when learning to do good yeah. design. 
Yeah. I, that was some amazing advice. We are going to close up on the show because we're almost, I don't know how we got the time so quick. I talk so um, much and so quick. But you have, it did happen. It happened really quick. Honestly, I was like, whoa. But you have a ton of work out there. Are there any particular works that our listeners should maybe check out? Like whether it be around decolonialization, writing, got a lot. So are there, any, are there any that stick out to mind and where might folks be able to access that? So you can look me up on Google Scholar or try to keep that in my, the ORCID ID stuff. I try to keep that mm -hmm. up, but I realize that everybody has the opportunity to find publications behind a paywall. And I, something I'm working on with my research is thinking through rematriation of knowledges back to the people. But so you see something that you're really interested in reading, but don't have access to an academic library, for example, if you're a practitioner or such, or just curious citizen, feel free to contact me via my website. There's a contact form. It's achakyuk.com. It's so you're going to just look at the show description to get the spelling, <laughs> but it's just, it's my yeah. last name. It will, it will all be on the show notes. Yeah. yeah. And you can contact me there. I haven't updated in quite a while about projects that I'm doing, but one project that I'm really proud of is a collaborative project that I'm working with my tribe, actually my sister, who wow. is the director of operations for the cultural arm, the nonprofit cultural arm of my tribe. And I'm also working with some amazing scholars at Virginia Tech. And we're doing this project called the Rematriation Project. And we are really deconstructing and thinking through archives and as a way to bring cultural rematriation, a little different than repatriation, but it's about bringing cultural items back. So things that are now behind the academic paywall that came from my ancestors and people to help with disciplines like Arctic studies, for example. And so bringing those back to our people, but also creating mechanisms for local collections to be able to be housed online somewhere and really empowering local communities to be doing community archive work, like a scanner and a Google sheet and be able to, yeah. and making guides for people to be able to really record our history in a way that the data that thinks about data sovereignty and thinks about that. So I can give you a link to the rematriation project. We have a, just a very basic website at this point because we're just planning but it's a really yeah. cool project that i'm very very proud of and it's a lot of good people working together on that yeah dr chalkyuk thank you so much for joining technically speaking and really excited about your projects and just keeping up with you your voice is extremely important and i know this isn't the category of show that you're always on but I think, you know, your stories and your thought process is really important to help inspire the listeners. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. I hope that something I said is help somebody with whatever they're trying to do. That concludes the show. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge way to show your support and it really helps us reach more people and grow our following. By the way, we release a new episode every two weeks. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube at Technically Speaking HW. Again, thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.
This has been a production of Technically Speaking Media.